When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on the show, it wouldn't be sci-fi if we didn't have cool tech, but in Dune, it's dirtier and more biological than you might expect. Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name's Abu. And my name's Leo. And wow. (laughs) Bugs. Bugs everywhere. Oh, sorry. Were we officially starting? I don't know. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> sorry sorry to know. leave you out in the open like that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> leave it in. You had to hard... Wow. Bugs. You had to hard pivot to bugs. And cut. <laughs> <laughs> bugs. But actually, the, a lot of the technology has bugs. <laughs> uh, that's all I'll say. It, surprising amount of organic life in the technology that... I'm thousands and thousands of pages of Dune down and uh, no, yeah. no hint that there's, you know, living creatures and some of this stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. That like today's episode is going to be a lot of fun because this is stuff <laughs> you and I as huge Dune fans, which I hope yeah. six or seven episodes into this podcast we have established <laughs> at this point, dear listener. Yeah, surprise, <laughs> we like it. Leo and I love <laughs> Dune. We breathe eat sleep dune and today's episode while although it's going to be non-spoiler was full of information that we had no idea about and so i'm really excited to get into it like the technology that we see in the world of dune in the world that frank herbert has created right is so jam-packed a part of what led to this episode being recorded is because you know abu we were talking about the first time that we read the first Dune book and the challenges that we had when we were reading it and like what stood in the way between us and having just a grand time with this incredible adventure. And part of what came down to one of the challenges that I had was things like the glow globes and suspensors and these different pieces of technology are all over the place. You hear about them all the time, all the time. And I had no idea what they were. And in A lot of books, you know, you kind of expect at some point for someone to like as a throwaway conversation be like, oh, yeah, I'm glad that we invented these. But that never really happens. And I think that by taking a measured look at some of this technology, we can set you up if you're about to read Dune for the first time or if you're reading it currently or maybe you're returning to Dune and looking for new fun. I didn't know that moments. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We've got a lot a lot of really good stuff. Yeah, this episode, chock full of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I would also add that another issue I had the first time that I read Dune many years ago was imagining the world. Right. You know, like a lot of books will, especially I'm a big sci-fi reader, a big fantasy reader. A lot of authors will take the time to like very meticulously explain to you. Like paint the picture. And sort of right. paint the picture. Right, exactly. Paint that picture in yeah, your mind of yeah. what sort of world we're stepping into, whether it's the very shiny, futuristic holograms everywhere <laughs> right. world of something like Mass Effect <laughs> or Star Trek. Right. Or it's like the darker, grittier sort of rundown world of something like Blade Runner. Like, like Mad Max. Or Mad Max, exactly. Like you at least are given some sort of visual... To where that you can sort of attach yourself to. When I was reading Dune, I was just kind of like, "What does a glow globe look like?" <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like what? What do I? And of course, like Frank being Frank was like, "I'm not going to explain any of this to you, but I'm sure going to mention glow globe <laughs> like 4,700 times." Yeah. So our goal today with this episode is not only give you a bunch of like fun, interesting historical facts about this technology, but also maybe help you understand 
why some of this technology exists and help you sort of paint some of that picture in your mind that Frank didn't bother with because he had like a million other incredible things to work on in the book. More power to him. Those are the reasons we love the book. Right. I don't know that I would have enjoyed it if he spent a chapter <laughs> explaining glow globes to me. <laughs> right, right. But, uh, you know, that, that's what we're for. That's what that's what this podcast is for. Let us fill in those gaps that Frank chose not to. Right, exactly. So as a reminder, I recommend listening to, if you haven't already, uh, episodes one and two. Definitely. We talked all about the timeline of Dune leading up to the first book. It's also entirely spoiler free. And we cover the 30,000 years. 30,000 years. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's still mind blowing. And today, <laughs> some of the things we're talking about really do take place across about 30,000 years. Uh, it's it's a long bit of technology. And in those first episodes, we talk about like how far technologically we as a species in real life have come in just 5,000 years, right? The invention of writing. Mm -hmm. you know? And then you think about 30,000 years in the future. So you would think that technology has like leaps and bounds forward. We've got teleporting. We've got shine <laughs> nothing rusts anymore. Everything's great. Robot butlers, the right, whole nine right, yards. Right, yeah, right. Like We've got Jetsons, right? The the Jetsons is not the way that Dune is. <laughs> and a big part of that comes down to uh, a rather large moment in history, right? Yes, yes. Just a, a significantly massive blip in the 30,000-year history of Dune <laughs> called the Butlerian Jihad. And we're not going to get too much into it here because, again, go back and listen to those timeline episodes. Right. We, we explain what the Jihad is and the massive impact it has on the universe but effectively, it is humanity turning against artificial intelligence, turning against advanced machines. And this is interesting because by the time we like get to the first Dune novel, the people in that universe are extremely skeptical of technologies. Yeah, yeah. And particularly new technologies. There's almost this aversion to trying to create something you know like right now we're very much in this phase of like yeah silicon valley move fast break things like <laughs> yeah make the newest fanciest like you know google's like yeah we're making a dog that's a robot and people are like why are you doing that don't do that <laughs> and like but nobody like everyone is just like racing to create like the newest fastest shiniest thing we taught a machine to beat humans in games it's like don't <laughs> no yeah like why are you doing that <laughs> and in the world of Dune, like, they have fought a giant apocalyptic war against machines, and now people are just very averse to this technology. Not that they don't have technology. It's still very much a sci-fi world. Right, right. And they still, I mean, it's a spacefaring empire. They have spaceships. They have aircraft. We're going to talk about ornithopters later on in a, little, in a little bit. They have these technologies that you would need as a spacefaring species, but they don't exactly have, like, this very utopian star trek vision of just the fastest shiniest coolest gadgets they're very gadget averse yeah and there's a lot of skepticism too right right like there's a lot of people going it's immoral to like rely on technology and there's a lot of those sort of sentiments present in universe mm -hmm. now there is like one race of people the the ixians who are just going to town yeah uh kind of in the face of everyone they're like look at all the stuff we're making and people are like okay oh really stop and they're like no <laughs> it's great <laughs> we're having so much fun and whenever the ixians are brought up and like the tleilaxu there there's this kind of sense of as long as they don't take it too far but exactly to your point there is still technology there are still spaceships there are still uh, radios and there are still things that you would expect but it, it's all very utilitarian it's all very exactly what it needs to be and almost no more than that one of the themes that has really become apparent to me as we've talked a lot about say for instance mentats basically these biological substitutions for technology are rampant in this universe yes man frank doesn't explain <laughs> almost any of it it's any of it it's it's a bold move to fill your book with a vocabulary yeah and then to basically not really try and there is an encyclopedia at the end of dune called the technology of the imperium yeah but it's again it's like one paragraph 
if that about each thing. Yeah, it, it gives you like the urban dictionary definition of <laughs> what a glow globe is and it moves on and you're like, what? That explained nothing and now I have more questions. Yeah. <laughs> it's like shit's lit. You're like, that's not helpful. <laughs> Thanks, urban dictionary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I think you I think you hit on two very key things there. The words to keep in mind as we get into some of these technologies here in a bit is one utilitarian. These technologies serve a purpose, and they do that one thing very well, and that's what they're for. Two, biological in nature. Like, this is pervasive, and you're totally right. It wasn't until we really started deep diving and talking about the bigger themes of the Dune series on this podcast that I realized so much of Dune's quote-unquote sci-fi is less technological science. Like, for when we think science, we think, like, iphone with a holographic display or teleportation (laughs) technology (laughs) yeah but when frank says science in the dune universe he means like biological enhancements genetic modification humans with the ability to you know shapeshift their faces like that those are biological technologies that have advanced not technological right right products that are helping humanity do things they normally couldn't humanity has literally changed themselves and evolved and i think those two things are very key to keep in mind as we talk about these technologies you're going to notice a lot of their foundations are biological in nature and a lot of their functions are purely utilitarian yeah and most of them are related to holtzman so that's fun (laughs) that's fun too yeah we're gonna we're gonna revisit holtzman yeah so let's get into it so what we did for today's episode leo you and i there's so much technology in dune yeah potentially a topic we might revisit in the future but we split up today's technologies you picked three i picked three right and we're gonna deep dive into those and explain some of the more common tech that you might experience as you read dune for the first time or revisit dune in preparation for the upcoming shows and films so you started off by picking suspensors and glow globes yeah (laughs) take a deep breath everyone we are getting into it so I, yeah, I, I chose glow globes because they, it seems like they're on every page and every page I'd be like, oh my God, what great plot. But also what the hell do glow globes look like? You know, just <laughs> utterly yeah, exactly. cannot. I was like imagining the paper balls from like Ikea. Yeah. Yeah. And turns out that's not far off, but to talk about the glow globes, we actually need to talk about suspensors and to talk about suspensors. We need to talk about Holtzman, MVP of the whole heckin' universe. MVP. Man, we have to do an episode on Holtzman. In fact, I I already have my spec script about the Holtzman TV show in the works, Leo. HBO, if you're listening, hit us up. (laughs) Let us us produce the Holtzman show for you. He deserves a show. Abu, I know how personally you're going to take this. We don't need another Spider-Man reboot. (laughs) It's had six attempts. Let's get a Holtzman miniseries. I, I can set aside my love of Spider-Man to agree with that. <laughs> I can agree with that. No, you're, you're right. Holtzman is, is the crux here to suspensors and virtually everything else we're going to talk about today. So to start off, and I'm going to keep this so, so, so brief, <laughs> in 13,000 BG about, this is, by the way, just for reference, about 1,200 years in our future, and... 23,000 years before Dune starts. 23,000 years! (laughs) Just a casual, you know, 23,000 years. Humanity discovers a suspensor nullification effect. And it's not super well understood at this point, but it is discovered. Yeah. Now, it started off as an imperial secret of House Ceres, this this suspensor nullification effect. And it took them a 100 years to figure out how to use it for, like, fast travel from place to place in in the in the galaxy and shortly after figuring out how to use it with some reliability the secret was leaked we had like a full-on plot leak and everyone was talking about it and suddenly everyone's capable of this crazy space travel yeah so basically whoever works on the google pixel every year also also (laughs) worked on this team (laughs) so at initially, you might think, okay, great. And this the Ceres Empire was like, cool, now we can expand our colonies to all over the galaxy. This is going to go great. <laughs> the difficulty is they didn't have faster than light communication yet. Mm. So the only way to send and receive communications was like aboard vessels, <laughs> which 
turns out was super expensive and awful and yay the empire fell apart oops <laughs> oops so that happened okay for thousands of years you know 6000 years 7000 years that's a, as much as people kind of understood in 7562 bg before guild holtzman discovers the holtzman wave and soon thereafter shares basically how to u- utilize it and the Holtzman wave is what enables faster than light communication. So he's basically just the coolest guy. Super nice. Yeah. No, I, I mean, like, step back and think about that. Like, y- y- humanity is stuck in a dark ages of sorts where if you are, you know, maybe you're like the first kid to go to college and your parents are like, yeah, let's send you to that new colony. You're probably never going to hear from them ever again. Bye, mom and dad. Because <laughs> like, there's no way, there's no, there's no email. There's no, there's no way to communicate with them using any sort of faster than light communications. And imagine trying to run an empire with, without communications that are fast enough. Right. A colony that you quote unquote oversee, like you enact a new bill today. They're not going to start following that for like, another thousand years because your fucking message is going to take forever to get there yeah this is pretty incredible holtzman comes in here and in 7500 bg discovers a way to finally communicate to these planets and colonies that are so far from the center of the empire you can just imagine how quickly this unifies the empire how it suddenly changes the way people can communicate yeah and how yeah the people in power can govern he he does this, right? He he tells people how to use it. It starts being used. Yeah. And then he, like, bounces for a few thousand years. He's just off doing kind of Holtzman shenanigans. <laughs> He's always up to something, you know? Yeah. Just <laughs> or a really long sabbatical. I yeah. mean, after you change the face of the intergalactic empire, you, you deserve a little holiday. <laughs> so he takes a 6,000-year holiday <laughs> and comes back. And is like, hey, you know what? I figured out some more wild and crazy shit. And it's all contained within this term, the Holtzman effect. Oh, the Holtzman effects. And I wanted to very quickly, because uh, Abu, you, you're talking about lace shields, uh, lace guns and shields later, right? Correct. Yeah, we'll touch on those later in the episode. So I wanted to kind of summarize the Holtzman effects as best as possible. And if you understand this stuff thoroughly, hopefully you'll be impressed at how well I did. And if you don't, I'm sorry. (laughs) The one-dimensional Holtzman waves, which are poorly named because they're not actually waves, enable faster-than-light communication. So we've already talked about that. That was something that he invented in 7,500-ish BG. And this basically bounces radio waves through folded space-time. Cool. That's reasonable enough. Yeah, useful. The two-dimensional Holtzman effect enables the shield, which we'll talk about later. Right, right. And then the three-dimensional Holtzman effect field allows for that faster-than-light travel. And that was kind of what people were already using without fully comprehending the, you know, they had discovered electricity, but they hadn't really figured out electrons yet, if that makes sense. Uh. Initially, they didn't really understand the idea of the faster-than-light travel. If you do it wrong, if you do it poorly... You can end up in nowhere, this like theoretical <laughs> philosophical void space, which doesn't exist. I'm glad Holtzman came in and figured it out, though. Thanks, Holtzman. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, after about uh, 1970 BG, Holtzman repulsion is discovered. Mm-hmm. Holtzman repulsion is this effect that basically, when applied, can create kind of a levitating effect on masses when on a planet and yeah we don't really know that we see this but we see this all over dune uh whether it's an individual who's grown kind of too heavy for their their britches yes yeah lamps which again i'm gonna get to glow globes in a second i'm so sorry give me one more moment we're getting there this is all preamble to get to glow globes (laughs) folks we're getting there have you been taking notes can you go back to the previous slide i forgot to take notes about h repulsion The, the test is tomorrow and welcome back to college. Who knew, by the way, that lamps were so complicated in this future world? Truly. Uh, so to summarize, okay, take a breath. To summarize, suspensors are a very specific application of the Holtzman effect to make small to medium-sized things levitate when on planets. Mm-hmm. Okay. Huh. All right. 
So from there, <laughs> glow globes. We've made it all the way across, you know, 7,000 years to Ikea land. <laughs> so from D Dune's Technology of the Imperium, glow globes are defined as suspensor buoyed, and now we understand what that means, suspensor buoyed, illuminating device, self-powered, and then in parentheses, usually by organic batteries. And that... Organic. I raised my eyebrows so high yes. on that because what no mention of that in the books no mention at all yeah i i hope our listeners ears perked up there as well back to that idea of biology being like a foundational part of technology in dune this is like a blues clues episode <laughs> where we're like okay kids take out your crayons Let's write that down. Did you hear the magic word? <laughs> <laughs> Organic. No, this is definitely something I did not expect. The idea that these lamps, which in my mind were basically exactly how you imagine them, those like floating round balls that you can get from Ikea. <laughs> I just imagined that basically. But yeah, no, there's something living and breathing in there. To kind of dive into what that is, we'll probably have to do a full episode on Planet Ikas at some point because it is really freaking interesting. The planet. Yeah. Basically, uh, again, a very brief, bare bones explanation. Ikaz started off when it was first sort of discovered as this wild, super crazy planet full of just wild and super crazy things. Ikaz gets nuked to shit. Way to go, humanity. Basically, the planet is left alone for thousands and thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Explorers go there and they go, well, there was a bunch of really cool plants there. Maybe we should go check it out. I know we haven't been there in thousands of years. And they see such insane, crazy things that they go to their explorer friends and they're like, look at this list of things we found. And they're like traumatized and sweating and crying a little bit. They don't know why. <laughs> and their friends are like, you're literally insane. None of those things could possibly exist. But you know what? They do. They do on ECAS. <laughs> and so one of the things on that list that our crazy, sweaty explorers are now trying to convince their friends are real. Yeah. Is is a glowing organism, you know, remember, yeah. nuclear energy, radioactivity combined with a ravaged ecological sort of <laughs> yeah. planet, yeah. Uh, like leads to uh, this microorganism that glows. And guess where they decide to put that bad boy? Stuff them in globes. Just just cram them <laughs> in there. Uh, yeah, there, there's this kind of variety of microorganisms that bioluminesce. And that's something we see here on Earth, right, with like... There are zooplankton that glow in the glow at nighttime and and fireflies and things like that. Mm -hmm. These microorganisms are stuffed, just stuffed into globes, <laughs> placed on suspensor buoys and then kind of equipped with their own little mini low powered Holtzman generator. And this is in uh, 4,266 by someone named E.M. Albeck. I will say very quickly, this is where Brian Herbert has written more about it in uh, the Butlerian Jihad uh, book. This is mostly going off of Frank's own words and the encyclopedia, as always. Right, right. So, <laughs> glow globes, to, to kind of <laughs> give you a picture of them, because I think that's really what I want to leave you with. Glow globes are usually round, made of a delicate, transparent molecule plastic. So not glass, but still delicate. And if struck firmly, they can break. Like my ego, yeah. And they're 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 round floating globes. There are actually some varieties, which I didn't know. Basic models, you know, entry level, 0% financing, five years, you get yourself yeah. a glow globe, you know, <laughs> pretty affordable for a family of four. Right, right. That's fine. Then there's like pimped out amazing glow globes. Yeah, baby. That will actually, by using just so much bullshit science, <laughs> will follow you at a set distance. I would have my glow globe follow me from behind at a, sli at a slightly lower angle so that there's constantly a halo. It's subtle. It's a, it's just... a good... <laughs> it's like, I don't know what Abu did recently. So I just want to follow him and, and listen to his words. <laughs> oh, man, I've let him brainwash me. <laughs> Amazing. So that's possible. You just have to save up for that, you know, executive class glow globe. <laughs> right, right. The last thing that I want to leave you with on the topic of glow globes, and again, congratulations, everyone, for <laughs> bearing with me. We've made it. You're certified. You're glow globe certified now. <laughs> yeah, you'll receive your glow globe pin in the mail. <laughs> Basically, the last thing I want to throw your way, the most well-known manufacturer of glow globes is House Lucifera, probably, uh, Lucifera. Of Golomar, 
There's a reason they're on every frickin' page of Dune. House Lucifera of Golomar, at one point, was making 38 billion glow globes per year. Billion. They were billion glow globes per year, which is wild. And then in every single one of those glow globes, just that Ikazian glowing microorganisms just all over the universe. Look how far they've come from all home. All <laughs> over the universe. <laughs> they've gone so far. Started from the bottom of Ikaz. Now we're here. And now we're here <laughs> on every fucking page of Dune. <laughs> I'm going to call it now. Drake is also a, a Tleilaxu. <laughs> Hands down. Hands down. Hands Look, down. We're yeah. on to you, folks. We've unmasked <laughs> so many people. Jim Carrey. First it was Jim Carrey. Drake. And now it's Drake. How many other times do you think they are paired <laughs> in a conversation? <laughs> Never. A lot of firsts <laughs> happening here on this podcast. Oh, I am I'm sweating from talking about glow globes. Dude, I'm sweating from learning about glow globes. So maybe we should maybe we should transition to our other technologies, yeah, which we promise are not as dense. They're much more easy to comprehend. Totally. And there is much less preamble to understanding them. But this 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 was incredible. Like just the fact that like you had to learn about suspensors and Holtzman. You had to learn about that technology. I fucking learned physics. You straight up learned physics. <laughs> As I was like trying to understand the just insanity of folding space time and then these like Holtzman point fields and why but I, I I more or less get it. And like look, at the end of the day that Urban Dictionary definition <laughs> at the end of the first Dune book yeah. is basically what we've been trying to say for the past 40 minutes. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. It, it's a floating lamp with a little glowing bacteria thing inside, and the rich people can pay to have it, that little thing follow them around. Oh, shit. I could have said it like that. Oh, damn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We could have saved a lot of time here, folks. <laughs> Let's move on. So I'm excited to talk about this next yeah. thing. So our next category of technology here is... Basically, uh, vehicles is the theme, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about ornithopters, which, if you think about it, sounds a lot like helicopters. No, suspicious. And then you are gonna talk about something called harvesters. So let me give you a brief overview uh, and history of what orn ornithopters are. Yeah, you'll come across them quite often. Ornithopters are simply the most common method of air travel in the Dune universe in the Imperium. By the time we reach the books by the time we get to the first book what they are is essentially they're flying vehicles that fly more like birds so they flap they have wings that flap rather than helicopters or uh, gliders which may use some sort of like propulsion or more of like a rigid sort of wing system these ornithopters are basically helicopters but the the wings flap instead now the fun fact about their history here is that ornithopters were developed by a team of scientists around 7,500-ish before Guild. Okay. These scientists just happened to be political prisoners. Casual, yeah. And the emperor was like, hey, y'all are my prisoners. I need you to start creating stuff that'll make me money. And they do. Yo, what a flex. What a flex, right. Sometimes it feels like... My boss says that to me, but, you know. <laughs> oh, too real. <laughs> Capitalism, baby. <laughs> baby. So the, <laughs> these, political, these political prisoners, these scientists, decide they're going to create a, a new form of, uh, of air travel. Well, so I have a question. Mm -hmm. You said that they're flapping their wings like birds. Right. Which, you know, we're, we're comparing that to helicopters. Helicopters make sense. <laughs> like, helicopters, I mean, it looks like magic if you don't get the physics behind them, but they, they have so many reasons for being what they are. Right. Why, 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 why flap <laughs> like birds? That's, it seems like such an inefficient way of flying. Well, to, to get to the heart of that answer, Leo, we have to get to the heart of the ornithopters themselves. Oh, I see what you did. Oh, ah. So ornithopters, <laughs> their primary feature, yeah. the thing that powers them, that runs them, is something that's called the heart scallop. Oh, okay. And that's not a, that's not a uh, cool like name for like the latest, greatest CPU. Yeah. Yeah. No, this isn't, this isn't a computer. No, <laughs> a heart scallop is a 300 pound giant land mollusk What? <laughs> at the core of the ornithopter. And it acts as effectively the engine of this helicopter of this ornithopter. Oh my God. So this giant land mollusk 
is transplanted into the husk of an ornithopter. The massive muscle of this mollusk is attached to the wing mechanism. (laughs) And then electrical currents are shot at the mollusk to make it flex its muscles, which then flap the wings. Oh my God. And the amount of electrical current controls like the angle and the strength of each wing flap. Wow. So there's that. Speaking of like biological foundations for their technology, their helicopters are just giant land mollusks that flap their <laughs> fake wings. Jesus. I mean, you literally, they just found like land biceps. Yeah. And then just stuck them inside a plane and are like, done. At this point, there, there were still like traditional modes of flight, right? There were still regular helicopters i guess a lot of pilots at first were like you want me to fly a giant land mollusk you want me to get in that thing and fly a giant land mollusk (laughs) you imagine that conversation you excuse what you fucking say that again what is this no no you're not hearing me it's a giant muscle okay it flaps the wings i don't i I hear that i don't like it what's why (laughs) why yeah, there, there was some initial resistance to ornithopters. <laughs> I can fucking imagine. For sure. For sure. But eventually, over the next sort of 500-ish years or so, they're quickly adopted. And the thing about ornithopters that's beneficial over like traditional technology and traditional air vehicles is their maintenance. These land mollusks are extremely easy to maintain. They feed on air particles so literally flying through the air is a way to just maintain the land mollusk wow and on top of that like the really the only part of the ornithopter that would ever need maintenance or repair or replace is the actual like wing mechanisms that are attached to the main muscle of the hard scallop Mm. so really the shell around the mollusk is the only thing that needs to be updated or repaired so they're they're extremely useful tools that last a long time and need minimal repair. And the eventually that resistant pilot from earlier comes around to the idea of like, oh cool, like this is an extremely reliable piece of technology. Yeah. That will do what I want it to and I'll never have to fix it or I'll very rarely have to get it fixed. So then they become very very much the favored mode of air travel throughout the Imperium. They're adopted quickly after that. I'm trying to like wrap my head around this. Are they so that there's no fuel? They're just powered. There's no fuel. Right. So they also require no fuel. Like suddenly like. Wow. Exactly. Leo. Like at first your reaction was like, what? A giant muscle in the helicopter. But the benefits are profound. Right. right, right no right. fuel. It basically fuels itself by flying through the air because the land mollusk eats like the air particles or whatever. Right. 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 And basically no maintenance except uh, the occasionally you change out the wings or upgrade the wings. That's incredible. Yeah. And I imagine, I mean, they they are, they grow to 300 pounds, but yeah. you could just yeah. bring a big sack of baby yeah. <laughs> heart scallops. <laughs> grow them and there. Just right. grow them on planet. And then you have your infinite engines just waiting for yeah. the machining. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. And, and one other point, if you're like me and you're like, wait a second, we're taking a living being, trapping inside, trapping it inside a metal shell. And using it to fl- using it to fly around, how dare you? You know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems cruel, right? How dare you do that to the to the land mollusk? Like the heart scallop deserves better. The encyclopedia goes to great lengths to point out that the heart scallops love being inside their shells. <laughs> they very they very quickly like adapt to the helicopter metallic shell, and they like it. <laughs> they feel safe in there. We shock the hell out of them. But they super like it. They love it. <laughs> they love it. <laughs> so, for, you know, for any of you bleeding hearts out there like myself, whose immediate reaction was, why are we trapping animals inside our helicopters? Yeah. It's cool. It's kosher. <laughs> they love it. <laughs> That's so wild. It's crazy. And again, this is just like simply the last thing you would think, right? Yeah. <laughs> when when I read the word ornithopter the first time I read Dune, yeah. I immediately was just like, yeah, cool, helicopter, whatever. And didn't think of it twice. And for the rest of my time reading Dune, literally just imagine like a generic Blackhawk helicopter. I had the process, the mental process of helicopter, cool. And then it's like the flapping wings. And I just went, no, 
It's a helicopter. Yeah, exactly. And I just pictured them as helicopters the entire time. Exactly. I don't know that I would enjoy Dune more knowing this, right. but it right. certainly makes it clearer why they never need to like stop and refuel the ornithopters mm-hmm. and it's just fun and it, it, it's fun it, i mean it's fun and world building but it's also it, it ties in thematically like this right 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 this right. like sort of anti-technology attitude that's pervasive throughout the books especially for many of the characters who are like we said fearful of technology after having fought like an apocalyptic war against them this is just another aspect of the world that fits in with the larger theme of the story this idea that instead of relying heavily on technology that we cannot control let's take biology and adapt it to our needs instead whether it's our own human biology or the nature around us that we can naturally find whether it's the the glowing bacteria from ecaz or the hard scallop land mollusks in our helicopters <laughs> what i'll say to wrap up about ornithopters is it wouldn't be an episode about technology if we didn't tie almost everything back to our boy Holtzman. Almost everything. It's crazy. It's crazy. So Holtzman, he did not have a hand in actually developing ornithopters. Uh, for once. For once. <laughs> right. You know, one of the few things he doesn't get to put his name on. But he was, as a young man, an ornithopter racer. <laughs> what? The dude was like an F1 racer as a young man who raced ornithopters. And if you recall, back in our timeline episode, we briefly mentioned, and we didn't get into detail in that, we briefly mentioned, oh, when Holtzman was younger, he had some sort of accident and nearly died. It was an ornithopter accident? It was an ornithopter racing accident! (laughs) Holtzman (laughs) nearly died in an ornithopter racing accident. He was just pushing that land mollusk too far. And that, that, that is what resulted in him becoming part robot, part android, because of this like nearly deadly accident that he, he got into. Wild. My first thought was like Star Wars pod racing on the Nintendo 64. Yo. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. So he was an ornithopter racer. Man, if not for that accident, how much of human history would be different? So much. Yeah. So, so that's ornithopters in a nutshell. Helicopters with a giant land musk at the heart of it. Man. So the next thing we're going to talk about is is specific to Arrakis or Dune. Mm-hmm. This is the harvesters the or harvester factories. Now, again, the, the, these are talked about a lot. This is, you know, the, the spice melange, which powers so much of the universe and has become the most valuable substance in the universe, is only found on this one planet. And they need a way of harvesting it and, and getting it from the sand. All of that's great. The harvesters are mentioned often, but it's not really clear. You know, I, again, I, I'm still like, I, I don't really know what they look like. <laughs> right. So let's talk about it. Um, harvesters or harvester factories are often 120 meters long. So that's it for uh, American head. How many? What is that? <laughs> Don't you dare make me do that conversion. Okay, this is a Dune history class, not a fucking math class. 4,724 inches. That is not helpful. It is 394 feet, basically. So about 400 feet long. Wow. By, we are American. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, By 131 feet wide? Jesus. That's huge. Really? That seems wrong. That seems wrong. I guess that's right by like a hundred, okay, hundred feet. So, so they're thick. They're, they're double C. Yo, thick. these are triple C thick, <laughs> spicy boys. <laughs> these are wow. Okay, dummy thick, spicy boys. Cool. So, <laughs> harvester factories are again, one hundred and twenty meters by four forty meters uh, in in size, which is about four hundred feet by about a hundred feet. Super massive, and they are spice mining machines commonly employed on rich, uncontaminated melange blows. They are often called a crawler because of the bug-like body on independent tracks. So that's what the uh, end of the Dune book says about them in the terminology of the Imperium. But 
through looking into this a little bit more, I was delighted to find out that there there is kind of a history of them. There's there's a beginning, a middle, and eventually an end state that we don't really see too much in the book. So the first generation harvesters were basically dragline machines that were were like, if you imagine like a crane arm with a big scoop on them, they would be installed and then they would use this big scoop to basically scoop up the this drug kind of dispersed in the sand, the sands of dune. And it would scoop them up and it would harvest this big circle of space. The second generation spice harvesters are the ones that we see the most of. Mm -hmm. And these are the ones that are kind of the big bug crawlers. Now, they are uh, dropped in by airfoil flying things. (laughs) The important anatomy elements of the crawler is as follows. There is a cone element near the front of the crawler that basically sucks up sand with which has that like spice ore in it Mm -hmm. and then passes that back into the back parts and components of this big long 400 foot long machine factory now the back parts are all refining and and separating out and kind of processing that raw ore it's kind of a an on-the-go all-in-one solution which was great because this suddenly allowed them to be mobile and allowed them to say rather than like having to build a construction site in order to harvest this super valuable substance this allowed them to kind of like get some on the go you know when they find pockets of this super valuable substance they can send these 400 foot long machines there drop them off and then if their activities drew the attention of you know the violent worms they could pick the the crawlers up with the airfoils and fly away basically right and they are on treads. So kind of tank treads surrounding a 400-foot-long factory with a suction cone front. But they're armored to reduce the buffering effect of the sandy winds of the planet. Yeah. So it ends up looking beetle-like. <laughs> it, like The beetle-like description is just, it's the fastest way to describe it. And it's really true. They, they, they are these massive 400 feet long by 100 feet wide segmented beetle-like uh, things. I actually I actually sort of imagine them as... I don't know if you've seen that movie Mortal Engines or read that book. I have not. <laughs> but that, like the premise, it's like a post-apocalyptic story and the premise is that cities can't stay in one place anymore. So they built basically the same, like treads or legs for entire cities. And the cities are just like these giant factories that run around this post-apocalyptic earth now. Oh, cool. And so that's actually sort of how I imagined them was like these mortal engine monstrosities driving around on tank treads and being dropped down by giant, giant helicopters. Uh, And you're totally right there. The imagery is very beetle like. And uh, I'm intrigued to see how the the upcoming Villeneuve film will treat their design. But I suspect it will look very much like a beetle. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Yeah. Yeah. There's a third generation one. It doesn't matter. They never come up. Yeah. So for our purposes, <laughs> just know the uh, the spice harvesters are 400 feet by 100 feet beetle-like tank machine factories <laughs> that lumber slowly through the sands and when they are in danger are helpless unless <laughs> a giant flying thing carries them away. And that's it. It's great. <laughs> and again, going back to our like sort of big picture technology themes here in Dune, they serve a purpose, right? Utilitarian. Like these aren't like beautiful. Th- this is not a a vehicle that is here for show. This vehicle is here to do one thing. <laughs> yeah. This one is actually one that doesn't have a biological base. But yeah. It, again, it di- isn't described, and I didn't imagine it as a very futuristic looking thing. I imagine it as like a very, very sort of dirty, sandy, sort of worn down factory where a bunch of like tired looking dudes are working and they're you know they're getting underpaid and they they can't unionize because their bosses and it, like that that's the vibe i'm getting from this like th- this is like right right coal workers you know it's literally an allegory for coal but this this is not a sleek shiny futuristic ship that can <laughs> yeah. go and harvest spice from the sand right, uh, right. Th- this is a factory on wheels now when i think sci-fi mm-hmm. i think lasers and shields and those exist in dune those exist dune has those yeah they look like a playstation 2 according to david <laughs> <Lynch>. <laughs>
they uh, they exist, but they're again like all things in Dune. They've got some sort of interesting twists. Yeah. So th- these are the things that that you kind of looked into, right? Right, right. So I did my homework on Lays Guns and Shields primarily because I wanted to sort of touch on this this idea of how war is conducted in the world mm, of Dune. Yeah. Because technology and war are intrinsically linked. A lot of consumer technology once started off as things that the military or someone working for the military attempted to build and then found a more consumer and a broader use for. So I think war and technology are so linked that it's important that we talk about that. And laser guns and shields, like you said, are very classic sci-fi. Right. Laser guns have been in all types of science fiction stories. It's a staple. Shields, again, something that shows up in virtually every single science fiction story. And Dune is not without these. But of course, there's a bit of a Dune twist. So let me start with laser gun. The laser gun effectively is literally exactly what you're imagining. It is a, it's a laser gun, pew, pew, pew. You know, it, it does exactly that. Amazing. There's even some, there's even some diagrams in the Dune Encyclopedia if you want to go look those up. But they, like the drawings are just like generically like 80s sci-fi laser gun. There's not, there's not more to them. That's what they are. There is a bit of a history though. Right. The early laser guns started off as like much bigger clunkier bulky and very very power hungry pieces of of warfare like like cannons or something yeah like giant cannons that could be shot maybe like three or four times before their batteries ran out like extremely power hungry but at the same time very powerful (laughs) these early laser guns like we were saying are just primarily used in warfare they're used as anti-aircraft weapons or they're used in space as anti-satellite weapons by the time, you know, we cross tens of thousands of years into the Dune novels, laser guns are much more compact. The technology has evolved. They're able to fire more than just three or four times. And they're small enough that you could have like a personal laser gun if you wanted to. Mm. Now, most people don't is the thing. Most people <laughs> don't have a personal laser gun. And that's not because there is no Second Amendment in the world of Dune. <laughs> that's because... Podracer Holtzman, our boy, once again, bringing this full circle, created something that effectively makes laser guns totally useless. And that's the shielding technology that you mentioned early on. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad we were able to bring this full circle, baby. We're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so so Holtzman creates this shielding technology. What is the shield? Again, if you're a fan of sci-fi, you know exactly how to imagine the shield. It's a shimmery sort of... It's not opaque. You can see right through it. It's a shimmery, translucent barrier that will protect you against any sort of projectile weapons in the world of Dune. If something is shot at you or thrown at you with a high enough velocity, the shield will deflect it. Now, a byproduct of the shield is also the fact that if a laser gun is shot at the shield, it results <laughs> in a nuclear explosion. <laughs> Which will most likely, I, I would bet on this, will most likely kill you and the person who shot the fucking gun in the first place. Yeah, like if a handgun also caused a nuclear explosion every time you shot it, very few people would use handguns. <laughs> Almost no interpersonal right. situations in which it's viable. You're like, I own this laser gun for self-defense. It's like, mm, do you? Do you? Because... <laughs> Can't use it. <laughs> <laughs> that could blow up a continent. What the fuck? Rest in peace, Ekaz. Yeah, maybe that was a laser gun accident. <laughs> no, it was intentional. <laughs> they fucked that planet <laughs> up. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> so... Holtzman, once again, has a, makes a fundamental change to humanity, to the entire empire, and to the way that war is conducted. Lays guns, which have been at this point around for thousands of years, are suddenly not a viable option. You can't go around shooting other people who have shields and causing nuclear explosions to go off everywhere. That's just not a viable way to conduct warfare. So what happens is warfare evolves and changes. These shields are right. big enough to protect you know, entire buildings or large areas or ships, but they can, they're also small enough for individuals to have them. Like you wear a belt, you hit a little button, and then you have a personal body shield. Yeah, and cool. of course, the richer you are, I'm sure, the better shield you get. Yeah. But the these shields are versatile enough to be used in in virtually any defensive function, whether it's protecting your ship or protecting your person. So warfare evolves alongside these shields. And laser guns are sort of 
ceremonial and not really used or phased out. They're still around. They're still used by highly trained military personnel. But the most common tactic of warfare is blades and knife fighting now because you can stab someone at a low enough velocity to actually penetrate their shield, to trick the shield into thinking this is not a dangerous projectile. Right. And so warfare changes. And, you know, in the very first pages of Dune, you know, you will be introduced to our main character who is practicing how to knife fight. Right. This is what makes you a warrior, not your ability to accurately fire a gun, but how ferocious you are with a blade and how controlled you are at being able to stab at just the right angle, at just the right speed and velocity to penetrate someone's shield, make it through, and stab them in the fucking ribs. <laughs> I, I do love that this is this very sci-fi shield created with a trick of physics and a planar distortion <laughs> creates basically a need to return to the biological in combat where rather than pushing the entire civilization the the, the entire species towards some futuristic sci-fi solution to resolving violent conflict through technology it pushes everybody to a biological solution you know this shield exists cool now let's fucking knife fight our troubles away <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, exactly. You're literally now relying on the strength of the muscles in your arm to be a good warrior rather than, you know, how big your laser gun is and how hot the laser is. Like, it, it's, again, this push of not relying on technology to advance you, but going back and relying on your biology and improving that. Yeah. And again, yeah. that this pervasive theme throughout the Dune series, this idea that the people in the Dune world trust and rely much more heavily on biological advance advancement rather than technological advancement. And this is just another interesting way. And again, you could write this off as just, yeah, this is fun fact. Maybe it doesn't come into play. But lace guns and shields are prevalent throughout the story. You'll come across them in almost every single one of the books. And they play a role here and they and not just a role for the characters but a role thematically as well totally i love the idea that an advancement such a huge advancement advancement in technology like shielding is crazy yeah when we figure out shielding in the real world it's going to change everything in the universe of dune it does change everything and it almost rewinds the clock people <laughs> yeah. have to learn how to like fucking sword fight again <laughs> got sword fighting and Vehicles powered by animals, uh, in this case, land mollusks. We've got plants glowing <laughs> to light up all of our indoor areas. It's a it's a whole new world, man. It's a whole new world. Yeah. And we're 20,000 years in the future. <laughs> it's crazy. So, Abu, I want to ask you a question. Okay. As we look at all of this technology, especially when we're looking at, like, the harvesters and the ornithopters, as weird as they are, you know... Given the existence of something like the land mollusk, it's not super outside of the realm of something that we could build today. Mm -hmm. So many sci-fi IPs project this shiny, futuristic kind of Star Trek universe where everybody's teleporting down to the planets and, and all that. Do you see our current trend on Earth here in the real world going in that direction? Or do you see us ending up in the sort of grimier grittier dune universe with this kind of blossoming distrust of technology that seems <laughs> rampant in 2020 like what, what how do you think things are gonna shape out you well know? you you just said it yourself leo there's already a blossoming distrust of technology right <laughs> like just in the last think in the last decade yeah like we went from being like wow the internet is so cool <laughs> i can share pictures of my cat to being like what the fuck? The internet just stole an election and suddenly there's all these racists everywhere? Like, And it knows what my cat looks like. Fuck. Yeah. And like literally like my phone is probably listening to me right now and I'm going to get like a <laughs> fucking land mollusk ad like as soon as I open Instagram, you know? Um, I, we have shifted so dramatically in such a short amount of time because technology has, in my mind, grown so exponentially. And so to, to answer your question... I think that Frank was in, and and he does this in so many ways. I think Frank was maybe sort of prophetic 
And you got to remember, he wrote these books in like the 70s and early 80s. Yeah. Like before the personal computer, before there were uh, little powerful phones and mini computers in everyone's pockets. Like his theory was we're going to distrust all this technology because we're going to start to rely too much on it. (laughs) And that's exactly where we are here in the year of our Lord 2020. (laughs) Yeah. It's true. So I think we are actually going to end up in a very similar place to the Dune universe. I, I don't know that we'll see land mollusk helicopters, <laughs> but I sincerely think that the pendulum is going to swing. And I feel like it's already starting to swing based off of all of these privacy and security and mis- misinformation and abuse that's cropping up in the tech world. I think the pedu- pendulum is going to swing from, wow, isn't this new internet and technology is so cool to right. why the fuck do I need this? And what's the shady part of this? You know, like people, people are like tech literate enough, in my opinion, especially the younger generations to now realize things that we assume are basic right, now. Right. The idea that like free isn't actually free, that your information is a reason, like is a way people like companies make money. Right. Right. That's something that like a generation ago, people would be like, whoa, the technology or the internet made everything free. How cool is that? <laughs> yeah. And now Gen, Gen Z is like, yo, yo, nothing is free, motherfucker. <laughs> so gated. Just like, yeah. ain't nothing free. It's like, <laughs> wow. Shit, dude. My nieces are intense. <laughs> All right. Do you want the blue popsicle or the red one? Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> God damn, that's good. Yeah. So that that's my long-winded sort of ranty <laughs> way of saying, like, I... I I think Frank is right. Mm. I think the pendulum is going to swing against technology in the next few generations. And we're already heading in that direction. What about you? Are are you more hopeful for technology in our real world? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know me. I'm just an unending optimist. Yeah, uh, yes. I, you know, I have a hard time measuring our world against Dune because so many of Dune's pivotal moments in the histories are like chance, you know, the discovery of ECAS. What a Pandora's box in some ways of just possibility that you're Mm, opening up that then you know about. And that's part of the universe now. And the same thing's true for the land mollusks. And that's the same thing's true for Holtzman's planar effect. Because if that planar effect had done something else, if it had Mm -hmm. accelerated objects thrown or shot, then it would have changed warfare the other way, right? <laughs> so I I think that with like the distrust of technology, I, I think there was a period of, of human technological advancement, which was naive of just go, 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 forward, forward, forward. And now I think there are some very prominent skeptics who are on that yeah. line of thought, you know, Elon Musk saying artificial intelligence is going to be the end of the species. When someone like him who has millions of followers and is saying that often, I think that provides a good counterbalance so that we're not just, you know, unchecked, rushing towards our techno demise. I do want to interject and say someone like Elon Musk can also be a coronavirus denier, though. So, Oh, is he? Yeah. Oh, Oh, fuck. Look, this all ties back to Frank and not following a prophetic leader. Elon Musk is not going to save us all. That's true. But that doesn't mean all of his ideas are bad. And you're right. Like, there are people like him and many other people who are potentially more qualified than him to, like, raise the alarm about things like artificial intelligence or the ethics of technology or even, like, privacy advocates and security advocates being like, yo, like, Facebook, why is your messenger open and why are you reading everyone's messages? Like, there are, you're totally right that there are advocates out there already who are sort of reining in this crazy freeform wild west technological advancement we've had over the past couple of decades. So I, I, I am optimistic, but you know, I, I think it's not good to be optimistic and naive. And I think we see in Dune a cautionary tale of, of techno technological advancement, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious, you know, I, I personally wouldn't say no to a, a land mollusk powered Vespa, <laughs> you know, just throwing it out there. It would save me a lot of money on gas for sure. Right? <laughs> yeah. I, I do. I do want to acknowledge that I, my big rant earlier about being like anti-technology <laughs> comes from an extremely hypocritical place. Cause I'm a huge geek, right? Like <laughs> as soon as the newest, like, 
uh, my roommate just got a 4K LED, uh, OLED, 120 <laughs> hertz. Like, yeah. I cannot explain how many user agreements we had to sign for some reason because that fucking TV is listening to us, you know? like All the time, yeah. But we're also like, oh my God, it's beautiful 4K OLED. <laughs> so I, I do want to acknowledge that like, as much as I am skeptical about technology, I am also very susceptible to the newest, shiniest thing. <laughs> I think I think the generation after me will be much, much more skeptical, and it will continue to be more skeptical after that. Fingers crossed. Hopefully, they'll Fingers save us. Crossed. Gen Z, save us. <laughs> save us. <laughs> We're susceptible to the 4K OLED. <laughs> Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic. So help spread the word of Muadib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the Golden Path. Bye.